0: Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast.
1: This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching.
0: And this is the time where I say, this week, we would retitle the podcast, Two Pastors Take a Pathetically Slow Run and Feel Their Age and Make a Podcast. But we did it. But we did do it.
1: And we survived. We did survive. We did not We thought we were going to
0: have all this extra time to podcast with, and then we were like, wait, we actually... Did not save any time because that's how slowly we ran. But anyway, I'm I'm a champion of uh, messy beginnings and beginning again and um, starting off badly. So that would be us. That would be everyone, really. Uh, so that's good good stuff. So what is astonishing you this week?
1: Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to change up the order okay. this week and start with what I'm thinking about, which is a continuation of the conversation we've been having for the past couple of weeks about uh, being multicultural church and white people doing black things, especially in church. And over the past week or so, uh, several people have reached out to say, hey, um, I find this interesting. Would you guys say more about this? And uh, this past Sunday, we had some guests um, who are African immigrants who worship with us at Derrida church and after worship i asked them where they normally worship and they named another congregation in our presbytery that does not have a reputation of being um multicultural seeking to be multicultural and i found it pretty astonishing that these african immigrants were in a predominantly historically White congregation, but it reminded me that uh, sometimes or often we want um, multi-ethnic but monocultural, mm-hmm. and when we think of multi-ethnic church, I think that's that's the baseline for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are simply trying to get there. Uh, that is simply having people who look different, people who come from different backgrounds in the same room, under the same roof, doing the same thing. Yeah, and I that's mean... That's not what we are. We're after. Right. We're not after that.
0: But I'm, I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me, I mean, with great sincerity, um, I don't know why they don't come and worship here, right? And And just... And it's so interesting because that people are expressing an authentic desire to be a multi-ethnic community. They're articulating their realization that something is not right, but even as the question is in their mouths, that question is their destination, not their beginning, right? So they're saying, I, and I believe the Holy Spirit is putting that question in your mouth, you know, I don't know why they aren't coming here and then and then then feeling like, well, I asked the question and that's that's the end. Like I just it's a it's a mystery, it's a puzzle. Instead of saying, Well, why don't we find out <laughs> why they aren't coming here and and what our stumbling blocks are and what is preventing this?
1: Yeah, when it comes to being multicultural, multi ethnic Christian community, um, I was literally thinking about this last night and what came to mind was my own marriage and i remember uh, when my now wife and i were dating things were wonderful and exciting and as we approached the wedding that was wonderful and exciting and the wedding itself was a wonderful day and it seems to me that when people think about being multi-ethnic, multicultural church, many of them are just in that uh, that dating, that wedding mm-hmm. phase, right? It's exciting, and and I believe that and celebratory. Yes, and it and that that phase is holy mm-hmm. and beautiful and necessary and of God
0: and part of sustained life together. There Absolutely. are moments of celebration and rejoicing and just exuberance that for for all day long those are those are
1: true and then the next phase for us in our marriage is after the wedding um let's see we noticed that um a lot of subconscious assumptions started to bubble up in our Mm -hmm. life together which caused conflict Mm -hmm. and even though we had talked about money and chores and all these things before marriage like in real life in day to th- day there were still assumptions like oh mm-hmm. i thought we would handle our money this way because this is how my parents did it oh i thought we would do it this way because this is how my parents did it and we had to work through quite a few things and again it was it was tense it was it was it was challenging early on and i think there comes a stage in becoming multicultural church where these assumptions start to bubble up yeah. And what once felt like a dream causes people then to ask, oh, did I make a bad choice? Is this the wrong thing? Yeah. Um, did I choose the wrong person? Like it, it causes a deep existential crisis, a conflict. Um, and, and you start to wonder, well, is this kind of community truly possible?
0: Well, and I think, you know, the truth is, I think that's actually a great. Um, way to think about it you know the dating and the wedding as opposed to the marriage because um, a lot of times when people have experiences in multi-ethnic communities those communities are not multicultural <laughs> but there is just you know you're popping in and you're having a moment and you're appreciating um, the differences and maybe even the contrast between your um, typical spaces But then you get to go back to your typical spaces and maybe you even think, oh, I'm going to take some of the good things I found over there and integrate them back in. Right. So um, and I, I don't say that to be ugly about it, but I think sometimes you get together for, say, a community Thanksgiving worship or a. You know, a a celebration of uh, you know Martin Luther King Day, and you have this sort of mountaintop moment of thinking, like, "Oh, why isn't it like this all the time?" and and not sort of recognizing that this is a a set apart, specific, and limited engagement, and the the real work of being community has all happened off off scenes. And when you are trying to live and create a healthy and holy multi ethnic, multicultural community. There's a cost to that. There's and I don't think we talk about that enough. And I think people have this belief that if you love Jesus and you love other people and you just keep keep on swimming like like Dory and finding Nemo, it'll just happen, it'll spontaneously happen around you. And the reality is, um, that's not true. Like healthy and holy multi-ethnic communities do not happen spontaneously or without deep intention and holy and right and healthy sacrifice and paying a cost. And you have to say, there are things that I want more than being comfortable. There are things that I want more than feeling good about myself. Because I think that's the big thing. Speaking as a white person, you know, living in a world that by and large mm. affirms my identity, and then coming into a multi-ethnic community and church community and really having to sit with what is real all the time and everywhere but often hidden from me but having to sit with the reality of how deeply um, wounded the connections between siblings in Christ are and how um, there is a lack of trust and it is reasonable.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And in a marriage, the problem in a marriage is that you have two imperfect people who bring all of their baggage and all of their trauma into the marriage. And Mm -hmm. so just think about um, a community that has been traumatized and shaped by a culture of white supremacy, now coming together, trying to untie some hard knots, and to address some deep wounds that's a lot of work. Yeah,
0: and let's be clear, when we talk about a community, people coming together having been traumatized by white supremacy, that is of course true for black people and people of color. It is of course, to the nth degree, also true for white people. White people have been damaged and traumatized by white supremacy as well. We have had worldly advantages but spiritual disease and so we bring so much unlearning that we need to do and it's deeply um you know it's easy to be very defensive about it because we have been often in our predominantly historically white communities we have been taught that that our default status is good that we're the good ones and so then when you come into a community where you are Um, making space for other people's lived experiences and recognizing that some things that to you were good or at least benign or at least neutral were actually deeply harmful and recognizing that parts of your own history, like not just your personal actions, although I think that's part of it, not just your present mistakes, that's part of it, but also just things about your own sort of cultural family lore things you treasured that you now realize like, oh, this isn't, this isn't beautiful. <laughs> and that's, that's deeply painful work. It's necessary work because the truth is, if you go back to the gospel, all people who come to Christ are called to die to self and come alive to something holy and radically new. All of us are called to renew our minds in Christ. But people who have been formed spiritually in white Christian churches have often been taught that renewing our Christ our mind in Christ just means being better and more excellent and successful members of the dominant white culture and so when we learn that actually we have deep repentance and spiritual work to do it's it's a very rude awakening for people who their whole lives have been told you're one of the good ones and you know having to understand what again I think is right there in scripture but this idea that there's a um sin is not as simple as i feel a bad thing i think a bad thing i do a bad thing but there's this other level of sin which is that sin is a system sin is a power sin is a principality sin is a kingdom that you are born into and so it has to pass away right and so all of that idea that that sin is a web that we're prepared for that spiritually that's not a new concept but now and cultural, you know, again, because I, in my opinion, the church has neglected to teach these concepts truthfully, the spirit has brought that truth into other arenas of life, because all life belongs to God. And so you see cultural institutions talk about systems, and people are like, what? systems can't be racist cuz racism is a sin and only people can individuals can do sin and anything that groups of people like that's just why, you know you're just your head kind of explodes because you aren't prepared to think that way because your church whether intentionally or unintentionally has really lied to you about the amount of depravity that exists in the world and i think as a as a white person growing up in a white church i i really i'm even going to seminary like i was taught that depravity existed in the world, but that it was really in the realm of people's personal moral choices, or maybe like some cultures had depravity, like, oh, look at the Taliban and the way they oppress women, or look at the Nazis, but not to look into our own culture. You know, maybe people say like, well, let's try to be a little less materialistic, but not to name actually um the depth and power of sin at work in these systems. And and I feel like we've said this a lot, but, you know, sin is most effective when it doesn't appear to be evil. So, you know, for people think, well, I will never be tempted by the devil to be a murderer, but probably you can resist that temptation because you can recognize it as evil. But when when Satan comes to you disguised as an angel of light and says, let's talk about law and order, let's talk about, you know, like protect, you know, creating legal structures to force people to be righteous, or let's talk about protecting vulnerable people, then all of a sudden, we can not pay attention to what are the actual fruits of these systems? How am I benefiting from them? And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the thing about if you only think of sin as a personal action, then the whole point of talking about powers and principalities of evil And the secular version of that would be systemic systems of racism is to say a person who isn't racist can be inside a racist system and that racist system will produce oppression and racist fruits, even if the people in it actually disagree and grieve those choices. That's the point of a system is that it will produce those things regardless of the moral um, values of the people within the system. And I, you know, I mean, on a related note, there's a battle I'm fighting right now with some people and what in the city and what I keep hearing is like, this is terrible. This is awful. We agree it's awful, but it's the codes. This is terrible. This is awful, but what can we do? It's just, these are the statutes. And so it's this idea of like, well, it's no one's fault. We all agree that this is producing bad outcomes, but it but it's impartial and it's fair and it's equally a pride. So it's just, this is what it is and you have to accept it instead of being able to say like, no, actually this system is not producing Life, It's producing death. And so we need to disrupt it because that is faithfulness.
1: Yes. And so just as in a marriage, when multi-ethnic Christian community gets together and does life together for some time, you bump into each other's trauma, touch each other's wounds. People say, ouch, there's conflict. But therein... Is the opportunity, one, to examine your own stuff, two, to see the system. For those mm-hmm. who um, can go through life without seeing the system, if they are open because of love of neighbor, mm-hmm. they can begin to see some things. And then for others who may only see how the system is against them, can begin to have some hope of of dismantling it, mm-hmm. living, um, breaking through it, mm-hmm. however you know you want to say that, uh, th- there begins to, I, I think, emerge uh, a hope. It-, it may look different for different groups of people, but something is happening. And just as in marriage, when you hang in there and deal honestly and um, in an open way with conflict... You then reach a new level of trust, Mm -hmm. of ability to problem solve together, healing of healing, truth of confidence that oh, if we dealt with that thing, Mm -hmm. the next thing that comes up, we can deal with that. Jesus will
0: be sufficient. But I think you said such an important word in healthy and multi in healthy and holy, multi ethnic and multicultural Christian communities there is conflict because the dangerous thing, like, I mean, everybody hates conflict and the people who don't hate conflict sometimes are like the people who enjoy conflict can be kind of problematic in a different way. Right. But everybody hates conflict and life is hard enough. And so it's just natural that people don't want to deal with conflict at church. But the problem is when conflict is, um, illegal and outlawed and we don't have difficult conversations or when a painful moment results in the question, you know, sort of who send instead of, you know, what what's going on and how can I, um, how can I learn when we see conflict as proof that Jesus has left the building instead of an opportunity to discover that Jesus is with us and Jesus is sufficient. That's how multi-ethnic communities can become a monocultural and be deeply unhealthy. And so I think that's kind of the issue. Is people are like, well, I love to come together at the MLK breakfast once a year because it makes me feel good and it makes me have hope and it makes me feel like, okay, we, sh- you know, we shall overcome. And then there's a place for me and everything's going to be all right. But if you're going to live that all year long, then you're going to have to build relationships where, if, you know, if someone harms you, hurts you, or harms you, you feel safe enough and loved enough that you would say, hey can I talk to you about what happened? You feel like you want to do the emotional labor to let someone know what happened. And if you really want to be in a beloved community and not just long for the day, then you're in a place where you really love people. And if your intentional or not actions have the impact of causing harm, you actually want to know. And so when someone comes and says, Hey, when you did this thing or when you said this thing, it hurts me, you're willing to sort of take a deep breath and say like, oh, it feels bad to hear that. But the person standing in front of me is someone I love. And so more than I want to feel like I'm a good person, I want to be loving. And that requires listening and and hearing and wondering and being open to learning, hey, I need to change. And I think that's what is so hard about multi-ethnic community is that it will just challenge everyone in ways that we don't want to be challenged. Because the people who are drawn to multi-ethnic community are the people, honestly, who are most invested in healing these racial divides. And so to get to this place and discover like, oh, wow, all of a sudden I am dealing with my own internalized racism in, in ways that I never have before, it's just so counterintuitive, that you would become more aware of your sinfulness and brokenness and racism in a multi-ethnic community than you were when you were living sort of a segregated life. But that's what will happen. That's why there's a cost. And I mean, I find myself saying this to people all the time, like, look, if this were easy, every not everyone would do it, but a lot of people would a do it. Of a lot of people would do it. A lot of people want it, but they just think that It should come cheap and it doesn't it requires a lot of work now the good news is the work actually grows you deep in Jesus and conforms you to Christ and it really sort of burns away the dross and leaves what is um, pure and sanctified I mean it is painful work but it is good work it's not harmful work it's painful work but it is hard work
1: yeah, and just in my, um, <laughs> just as in my own marriage, and if you haven't figured it out, I'm looking at this whole issue through the lens of, of my marriage, and um, well, I and remember- it, And you should probably
0: clarify to people that you are not married to a black woman. Uh,
1: well, yes, I'm going to get there. Oh, I'm going to okay. get there. Um, early on, um, when my wife said things like, we need to talk, I have something I need to say to you, or- I've got an issue. My fight or flight response mm-hmm. kicked in. Mm-hmm. Like and it was mostly flight. Well, who am I kidding? It was almost always <laughs> flight. Because whenever I heard we need to talk, my brain <laughs> translated that into here's I'm about to tell you Away way that you are not loving me well. Mm-hmm. And that was the last thing I wanted to hear. It's like, I'm, I think I'm doing the very best I can. And if it's not good enough, then what does that say about me? And I just, I did not want to confront that. And so I would often avoid, 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 which um, did not go very yeah. well. Yeah. And I think that happens in, multi-ethnic communities right we when one group or one person says hey i got an issue a fight or flight response kicks in for others and the last thing people want is to feel like they are being um labeled or uh, put in a category ready for condemnation to say you are this you will always be this and i thought you might be able to help and be a part and uh, serve and uh, be a part of healing, but you're not. And I, I think there's a, there's a great fear among white people that um, you know if I am fully invested in a multi-ethnic community and someone says to me, hey, you did something, you said something, you posted something that is wrong mm-hmm. or hurt my feelings. There's a there's a emotional, there's a kind of meltdown that, that happens there. Yeah. But if you keep working through it, what I found in my own marriage, again, there there is a strengthening. There's a there's a um, there's a growing we. There's a mm-hmm. growing us. We can do this. Yeah. This is about us.
0: Yeah. No, and, a- and,
1: yeah. And well I'll just say and a and a new culture begins to emerge. Mm. Because uh, it's very clear that my wife it has been particularly shaped by her family of origin. I've been particularly shaped by mine. But together, over this past decade, it's like, oh, we are forming something new in our house.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if we, all of us need to walk into the body of Christ Holding our identity and our culture of origin lightly, like not rejecting it, and certainly not swapping it for someone else's. But we are, I mean, Jesus calls us to repent, um, and to be born again and made new. So, So regardless of who we are, we are trusting our whole selves to the Holy Spirit, seeking new birth. And so I think there's, you know, there's really level ground there. But I do think I mean, and I think about this a lot as a white person, just sort of, I mean, there's famously a double consciousness that, um, who first talked about, is it is it James, not James Cohn, it was... Um,
1: double consciousness? Mm-hmm. Du Bois?
0: Du Bois. Talked about double consciousness of being a black person in this country, and I'm not taking anything away from that. I'm just saying, like, when you are a white person and... Feeling led by the Holy Spirit into the work of anti-racism and decolonizing, there's a sort of double consciousness inherent in that as well, and that you're interacting with people. And also, there's like a separate operating system running in your bread, yes. bread head all the time, thinking like, "How might what I'm doing unintentionally convey?" disregard or disrespect or dishonor? How might what I'm doing right now really be about appearing to be something instead of actually trying to be something? How how might what I'm doing right now be virtue signaling instead of actually em- embracing truth, right? And so, and, and so that's just that that's tiring, like it is. And, Exhausting. and I also think it's, it's in the case of white folks sort of seeking to deprogram from white supremacy, I think it's necessary. Uh, um, and I also think it's just really important to recognize it's not a matter of if, you know, if you're in a multi ethnic space, and, and ironically, if you really are a person who people believe is sincere about wanting to be part of reconciliation and healing. So you are a person that people feel safe with and trust, then it's not a matter of if someone comes to you and says, hey, you did this and it was racist and it was harmful. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because that's the culture that I was formed in. And if I'm not a safe person, then people are never going to make themselves vulnerable by telling me the truth. But if I am a safe person and if people love me enough to take me seriously, then they might be willing to do the emotional labor of saying, hey, um, this is the impact that your actions or thoughts or choices had on me. And so then as a person who knows not if, but when... I can then decide for I can pre decide for myself, and this has happened to me before. And I'd like to think it will never happen to me again, but it will. I know it will. I can pre decide that when that happens, I know I'm going to feel awful. I know that I'm going to feel like my worthiness and my belonging are threatened. I can pre decide that I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to get curious. I'm going to remember. That I'm a sinner saved by grace. So to discover the particular effect of a sin of mine on a brother or sister in Christ, like the specifics are new, but the but it's not new news to me. I knew this about myself, um, and that I have the tools I need to seek repair. That I'm not God, so I don't get to control the outcome. Um, it's possible. That someone might say, I no longer feel safe or interested in being in relationship with you. That's possible. I don't control that. But if that happens, God will still love me and will still want to be in relationship with me and there will still be community and belonging for me so I can just be vulnerable in that moment and seek the Lord's grace and guidance and know that whatever happens Jesus will still be risen and there will be a place for me in the kingdom of God. And then, you know, amazing things can happen, um, when you have that posture of repentance <laughs> and meekness, uh, and then as to your earlier point, like once you do it, once that happens to you once and you realize like, oh, the sun still rose and set, oh, I might have had my image of my own righteousness has been disrupted, but God is still righteous. and the center of my life and faith is not me being righteous. The center of my life and faith is God being righteous. So like, this is this is true. Like whether I confront it or not, it remains true. And so wherever there is truth, the Holy Spirit, will bring life. And so just, you know, this is one of those places where you just discover in experience, not in theory that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for you.
1: I'm really glad you feel that way. Cause there, there's some things I've been wanting to say to you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. I would I'm love kidding. it if I'm we kidding. could not do it on the <laughs> podcast. But no, I mean, but like in all honesty, in like for real, for real, for real. I mean, I think about that. I Remember think about that, that
1: time you no I'm No, but
0: I think about that specifically in our friendship, right? Like, there's not there's no way that we could be real and authentic friends for decades. I mean, we've been friends for more than Long a decade. Time. Like, there's just no way that in all of that time there hasn't been a time where, as a human being, I, you know, I've failed you in a particular way that probably that does relate to, you know, my identity and culture and my particular weaknesses, the the ways that sin has a hold on me. So the question is, like, you know, what what do you and your freedom feel like you want to do about that? And and if we continue to be faithful to one another in friendship, then then that has to happen, right? Like there's just Absolutely. no way. Absolutely. So I think like part of it as a white person who, who wants to be in Christ centered relationships is just sort of being ready and recognizing like, nobody's my friend. Cause they think I'm God, right? Like no one is my friend <laughs> because they think I'm perfect and people. And I think this is one reason why, like, honestly, we don't have very many friendships And we don't cultivate a lot of intimacy in this culture because if you don't know someone well, you can believe that they are purely good or purely bad. But when you know someone well, you just know the parts of them that are vulnerable. And that's why sometimes we, we peace out on relationships when they get nuanced and complicated because we know the fullness of a person's humanity and, and that, um, Requires a kind of tenderness towards their vulnerability that we often just don't want because we have transactional relationships with people.
1: Yes, and that brings me to the last thing I'll say about this subject for today. We may talk about it again next week. Um, but again, as I think about uh, my own marriage, one of the best things we did early on, and it wasn't planned was that we um, we shared our, I don't even know what to really title this, but it was our ethnic story. Because I'm African American and my wife is not, my wife is Korean, I was very interested in how she grew up, what her parents were like, and um, what her teenage years were like. And so it was just really... So helpful for me to hear things like her, um, you know, when she when she was a teenager as a a Korean uh, girl in uh, Tacoma, Washington, she said, I just had this desire to be an American girl, which primarily meant a white girl. Mm -hmm. Um, It was interesting to me to hear or to see, you know, to go through her photo albums when she was in the army. Almost all of her close relationships were with black women. I looked through her um, high school yearbook and saw this great diversity of people. They were um, Asian and uh, Hispanic and white and, um, uh, and all mixed together. And she's like, I come from a very diverse um, part of the city and background, Uh, And it was helpful to share my own racial story because even if I had a friendship, a relationship, any kind of relationship with another African-American, our stories are not the same. I mean, I grew Mm -hmm. up in suburban Memphis. I lived in, um, we were the only African-American family in our neighborhood and at the same time, uh, we regularly spent time in the predominantly black part of town, and so I'm, I was often in and out of different communities. That shaped me. That's not everyone's story. In the 90s, late 80s, 90s, I went through a very deep and strong afrocentric phase. the way I dressed, uh, the, the music I listened to, um, you, you may not have, you, you probably wouldn't recognize me. Um, I spent, in those years I was living in Louisville, I spent a lot of time in, um, what's the name of that store, a Kubelon, um African bookstore, and read and bought so many books from there. That was the time in my life when I celebrated Kwanzaa. Uh, there was a, 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 a pastor in Memphis who had the uh, uh, yearly celebration of taking the light from the Christ candle from the Advent wreath mm-hmm. to begin the celebration of Kwanzaa with the canar and those candles. And I adopted that. And so that was a very formative part of my life. And for her to know that part of my history, to, sh- to know all of my history, not only those things, but the wounds um, of being stopped by the police, the wounds of going into white churches and being asked not to come back, to share that with her and have her to um, hold it in a, in a gentle way so that when issues come up, she knows that story. And I think one of the things we've got to uh, be more intentional about in our communities is just sharing our stories. Mm-hmm. This is what I've been through. This is what I've experienced so that you know me.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, yes, particularly anybody who wants to be in a multi-ethnic or multicultural community and i i think what's hard about that for white people is and we've i know we've said this on the podcast so many times but you know as white people we're not taught to see white culture like for us it's not we don't have a culture we right. think that we're normal and so we don't know what our assumptions are we're not ta- i mean we could discover them but no one rarely are we taught to see them and and because we operate in systems that often are not safe for black people or people of color then when we are interacting with people of other ethnicities they are often in in order to do what they need to do or to be safe they are often conforming to our culture that then reinforces our assumption that we don't have a culture, that what we have is normal. And so I think that sharing those stories is so important, but before white people can share it, we have to recognize that we have it and that we have a culture. And honestly, and people can think this is silly, um, but I am so interested. Have we talked about this on the podcast? Like one of the things that's been really interesting to me has been watching and listening to the story of um, <laughs> Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, mm. because the way that they tell their story, and particularly, and I haven't read his book, but excerpts and uh, listened to interviews with him, and um, the way that he tells his story is interesting to me because I recognize it. Like, I recognize in my own story, in my own personal history this impulse that it doesn't matter what is true. It matters what people see. And there are certain feelings that if someone doesn't agree that they're reasonable, then you're not allowed to have them. And, you know, spaces where if you come and tell the truth about how you're feeling to someone you love, that that's a betrayal of them. Mm -hmm. And so it's just interesting for me to see that because I don't see it as like, oh, this weird, kooky, one-off, crazy royal family because honestly what I know just experientially and sociologically is this royal family, so the supreme family of this nation, is literally... A family of supreme white people and so the culture of what is proper and what is improper and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable like that has trickled down into my um unexamined assumptions of what's okay and what's not okay like what my children owe me and what I owe my parents and what a healthy community looks like and what's duty and what's honor and what's beautiful and what's ugly. And you know, all of those things, like it helps me see what white culture is and not all of it is bad. And, um, a lot of it is deeply unhealthy and toxic, Primarily because you're not allowed to examine it. You're not allowed to see it. And you're not allowed to be honest about what it's doing to your soul. And
1: you're raising just, I think, a perfect example of what we're talking about. Because I don't know if Harry would have had the awakening. Yeah. If it wasn't for his marriage.
0: Well, he says that. He says he experiences his leaving the royal family is obviously a huge loss, but also freedom and deliverance. And he says that she saved him because it was in seeing how toxic that was for her that he recognized, hey, wait a minute. This was toxic for my own mother. This isn't what I want for the person I love. And it isn't what I want for myself, and it isn't what I want for my children. And so if the choice is stay and conform or leave, I'm going to leave because I'm allowed to tell the truth about my human experience.
1: And for her, there's also an awakening, Mm -hmm. right? So she has been able to live her life very comfortable in a lot of white circles Mm -hmm. because... Her, her mother's African-American, her father's white. And so for many of us, there comes a time where you are confronted with the reality of racism that just hits you. And I think she has had that. And it, it's hard, it's painful. And it is, a re- it, is, it is a reminder for me that there are times when I know African-Americans, maybe for others as well, there comes a time as you're navigating all of this uh, white supremacy in society and world that you have to step away. Mm-hmm. That for your own healing and sanity, there's a time when you, you need to disengage because it, th- these powers and principalities are ugly and it's it's hard, it's painful, and for and your, they're
0: destructive, and
1: they are destructive, and for your own health and for your own uh, ability to keep going, uh, to fight another day, you must disengage. And I time. think
0: for white people, I mean, you you understand that if you want to be a part of this, you have to be able to be uncomfortable. You just have to be able to be uncomfortable and say, I don't, this doesn't feel good. This feels uncomfortable to me before I attack or run. Let me just sit with this for a minute and remember that it's always been uncomfortable for people to be in the presence of the Holy. Like Mm. that that's not new. And so it's possible this is uncomfortable for me because it's not healthy, but it's also possible that this is uncomfortable for me because it is healthy. This might be chemotherapy. This might be surgery. This might be a kind of pain that doesn't harm, but heals. And I just think, you know, recognizing that people who have been impacted by the same system in different ways will need different things and being able to trust the Holy Spirit with ourselves and with one another and to sincerely say, there might be a way that I desire for you as my friend to show up in this community or in this space, but my ultimate desire is not to use you, but to love you. And so I want to support and celebrate you doing, following the Lord where the Lord leads you and and trusting um, that system. And really, you know, the scope of this healing work is eternity. And so I think that's the other thing is like, we have this idea, I think is. I mean, everyone, I think there's a kind of urgency that is holy in that, like, there are things that have become normalized that just are unacceptable and they needed to have ended 400 years ago. And so we can't be patient, um, with some of the, um, like structural violence and systemic disenfranchisement needs to be done, um. But there's a kind of relational healing that we need to understand, um, have some right expectations about time Mm. and um, and and be willing to say, you know what, I'm allowed to love people who maybe don't love me back Um, and I'm allowed to get curious about why someone might not want to be in relationship with me or why someone might not want to be as intimate with me as I want to be with them. And to say, what I can do is forbear and bear with that person in love and have some, have and grieve it, right? And then also just receive it as this is me experiencing a little bit of the brokenness of these systems. And um, I'm not fetishizing that pain, But I am recognizing that um, it's real. This division is real. And I, I don't get to set the pace of healing. The Lord does. So the Lord sets the pace of justice, which will probably feel too fast for those of us who have had certain advantages and certain safeties. But the Lord sets the pace of healing, which will probably feel too slow for us. Um, for some of us.
1: Okay, so we totally have to come back to that another time because I have a lot of stories that just came up in me around everything you just said. Um, but I, I said a moment ago. Okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say on this. <laughs> so, what are you thinking about? I, I What's mean, astonishing you? No, the
0: reality is, it. That we we we've, we've done a good job, and our format is meant to inspire us, not to strangle us. Because because I'm thinking a lot about repentance. I'm doing some writing about repentance, and so obviously that's been the thread running through this whole thing for me is that the world does not celebrate repentance the world doesn't believe in repentance the world believes in sorting the worthy from the unworthy but the but the stumbling block and scandal of the cross is that our god is a god who believes in repentance so not just throwing people away like garbage but inviting people in to a holy new thing which is actually the original thing like i i've been keep running against that phrase which is sort of part of the liturgy in a lot of spaces as, as it was in the beginning is now and forever shall be. And just recognizing like what we're doing is being invited back to the shalom that was in the beginning, the shalom that yes. is now in the spaces between us as disciples of Jesus Christ, even in the struggle, even in the discomfort, yeah. like the struggle to reconcile with one another is shalom in and of itself. And it forever will be, on the other side of time and into eternity. And so, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Uh, I lost the thread. No, the no,
1: that's good. I love that because when I hear repentance, I just mourn that we hear it in terms of punishment and hell. And so when that word comes up, we think we are taught to think, i need to repent i need to turn in order to avoid punishment instead what the biblical narrative gives us is no repent because this thing turn to god because what god is offering you is beautiful and wonderful and bliss it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom turn to this beautiful thing go sell everything and buy this treasure in the field run towards come and buy you who have no money come and buy this good thing taste and see that the Mm -hmm. lord is good that's that's worth turning
0: right and we and again just because of the way the gospel has been colonized um, you know, this word word has been particularly weaponized in harmful ways against members of the um, LGBTQ community and this idea that some people, bad people, have to repent of who they are, but good people don't have to repent. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is we all repent and turn and enter into the kingdom. And, and it's not that, well, if you're good enough, you don't have to. And if you're bad enough, you do. Right. It's not it's not that kind of judgment. It is a judgment, but not that kind of judgment, which again is I think why Jesus says to his cousin, John the Baptist, like, look, you are the greatest ever born of women and you're the least in the kingdom because you thought repentance was for some, but not all. And in the kingdom of God, repentance is for all, which is why some people don't want the kingdom of God because some people really only want repentance to be reserved for those who they see as worthy, right? So, and you know, when God, so pulls out Saul and puts and sets him up as or down however you want to imagine that to be an apostle to the Gentiles I mean he was a murderer he was not he was one who if he had come out to the desert to seek baptism from John, John would have sent him away. He was exactly the kind of Pharisee that John said, you brood of vipers who warned you don't flee from the wrath to come. Like, I want you to get what's coming to you. Right. So I'm just saying like, even people who deeply love God and deeply love the idea of repentance have a limit that they want to put on it. And also sometimes want to say like, well, that's repentance is for other people, not for me. Repentance is for all of us. And I have a, good friend, um, Shardé Henry, who is a black woman and uh, called to ministry and, and, you know, she, we were talking about reparations and, and when she talks to people about reparations, she says, I'm not interested in reparations until there's repentance mm. because we need this deep, you know, the truth and reconciliation committee. We need the deep work of repenting as a nation before we can even reproach, approach repair. Yeah. And, and some people very much would like to pay people off and then say, look, we did this and now, you know, we can put it in a box and put good. it away and we don't ever have to think about it again. And the reality is this is deeply spiritual work that the church should be leading the way in. Yeah. And I will
1: take my 40 acres, however.
0: I I want you to have your 40 acres and your mule. I'm just saying but we no, have your, to do the work of well repenting yes. first.
1: So I'm reminded of the German government who has had to do so much work uh, post-Holocaust. And um, I think I mentioned it on this podcast last summer um, because they were also part of the colonization of the African continent and many atrocities on that continent, Um, I think it's the nation of Namibia um, has asked for reparations and the German government actually offered something Mm -hmm. last summer, last summer, which was, to me, astonishing. It it was mind-blowing that a European country would say, yes, we did this, we're sorry, here is some kind of reparation.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason it makes sense is because it's a straight line. Because what we see in the Holocaust that white people are so horrified, and rightly so, or horrified was, was all of a sudden the system of colonization is turned against some white people. And that's why we were like, oh, nothing like this has ever happened before. It is particular. And in no way do I want to trivialize it at all. But the system of deciding that a group of people because of their ethnicity are a threat and they need to be systematically destroyed that's not new um what's new is maybe where it happened And what is remarkable is that it happened to people who are also deemed white in some sentences, and that's why some people who are white had great solidarity with the people in concentration camps in a way that they don't have solidarity with the people who were in concentration camps on the continent of Africa. Like Winston Churchill calls out Hitler as the greatest perpetrator of evil for the kind of colonization that he's trying to do in Germany when... Churchill was a part of the same kind of colonization work on the continent of Africa, but we don't see the connection as white people because we've been taught not to see it. Mm -hmm. So, well, I feel like we should probably um, press pause on this conversation for today. Um, But thank you all so much for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, oh, here's my moment. (laughs) Prez, Derita Press D E R I T A you want to go to their website which is deritachurch.faithlifesites.com Oh that's so exciting it. for me sites with an s uh and you can also go to their YouTube channel or their podcast on Podbean And you can worship with them at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast or our YouTube channel. Look for The Green Tree because there's a lot of groves out there at The Grove Charlotte. And um, you can worship with us at 10 a.m. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week.